Old Testament Reading Plan Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Deuteronomy 34 and Joshua 1 through 5. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. If questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them at bit.ly slash capital A-S-K hyphen capital O capital T. Once again, that's bit.ly slash capital A-S-K hyphen O-T. I apologize once again for the upload delay with this episode. Hopefully by next week, we'll be fully settled after our move and I'll be on a more consistent schedule once again. Thank you uh, for those of you who were so kind as to offer me some grace. Uh, Let's get into our text today. As we end uh, the last chapter of Deuteronomy, we see Moses' death and we turn the page from one chapter of the Hebrew people's story to the next chapter of Joshua's military leadership. And as we do that, I think it's worth reflecting on the arc of history. We are, all of us, post-Enlightenment Westerners, and so we tend to see history most naturally in mostly linear uh, frames of mind. Uh, We see a mostly linear timeline, each generation making greater and greater gains as history moves forward. There are some great sayings, like Isaac Newton's, if I've seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s, uh, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Uh, These great sayings convey this idea of history uh, moving forward in each generation, making greater and greater gains. there's a certain flow to history, uh, we assume. Many of us you know, accept that assumption without a whole lot of thought. However, this wasn't necessarily the way that the ancient Hebrews understood history. While Jewish thought certainly contributed to our modern linear notions of time, in the ancient world, history didn't seem linear so much as cyclical. For the biblical writers, while history moved forward, there were certain significant elements of repetition— Perhaps the image of a spiral works best to describe this, or the cylindrical rising of the metal in a spring. Uh, The summer comes, in other words, every year, and each year shares some similarities with the one before it, and yet each year is different in many ways than the one that came before it and the one that will come after it. So because of all this, because of this understanding of history, we're going to notice some significant echoes, some some callbacks, if you will, to elements of Moses' story as we begin reading Joshua's story. The further we read in the Hebrew Bible, the more of these callbacks we'll begin to see. So keep your eyes peeled, open for these. So we end Deuteronomy by witnessing Moses' death. Um, I think that it's also worth reflecting not only on the arc of history here, but on the three acts of Moses' life. Act 1 being the 40 years he lived as an Egyptian prince. Uh, Act 2 being the next 40 years in which he lived in the desert of Midian as an Egyptian exile. Act 3 being the final 40 years in which he led a stiff-necked and rebellious people through the wilderness. You know, had Moses taken stock of his life at, say, 80 he might have wrongly considered himself a failure. So much of what we remember Moses for doing happened in the last third of his life. The first two-thirds of Moses' life are completely written about by the time we get to Exodus 6. And uh, that's 
you know, four chapters worth of Moses' life, five chapters perhaps. Whereas from Exodus 7 all the way through the end of Deuteronomy, we have the last third of Moses' life. No one ever outgrows or outlives their usefulness. No matter your age, you matter to God and can still play a key part in bringing God's kingdom to earth. So with Moses' death, the Israelites lose—they've lost a great leader. Anyone who's experienced transition knows this. Great leaders are very hard to replace. No matter how talented a new leader is, they're going to have a different skill set, a different way of doing things, and just by their very presence will necessarily force some change. Even Joshua, who has been given the Spirit of God, who's received Moses' blessing to be the next leader of Israel, Joshua's going to have a different way of doing things. And so we see this repeated charge that Joshua receives four times in the first chapter of Joshua alone, be strong and courageous. Joshua receives this charge on the threshold of the promised land, and and this charge does two important things. First, it focuses the narrative militaristically. While maintaining strength and courage is important in times of peace, it is essential in times of war. Uh, The second thing it does is it names the tricky balance of leadership. Notice that the charge isn't, Joshua, keep everything the same as Moses did it. Instead, the charge is to lead. If you're leading, you're going somewhere, probably somewhere you haven't been before. In the midst of, of leading the Hebrews and an invasion of the promised land, Joshua must also balance maintaining the same DNA of the people while being willing to lead them in different ways than Moses did. Good leaders are going to do this with strength and courage, using the strength of a vision to propel a people or organization toward new frontiers, while using uh, their courage to seek feedback from trusted lieutenants that may affect their vision. So before venturing any further into the text, getting into the second through fifth chapters of Joshua, let me pause to offer a few words about this section of scripture generally and the book of Joshua specifically. In in turning the page from Deuteronomy into Joshua, we don't see it so clearly in in many of our uh, English Bibles, but in the Hebrew Bible, this was turning the page from the Torah to the Nevi'im. There were three sections in the Hebrew Bible, um, which is sometimes called the Tanakh, after these three sections. The first section, the Torah, sometimes called the Pentateuch in Greek, Torah is the law or teaching. It's the ta in Tanakh. The second section, Nevi'im, is the Hebrew word for prophets, and it's the na in Tanakh. The third section, Ketuvim, is the Hebrew word for writings. It's the ka in Tanakh. Beginning in Joshua, we also begin reading the second portion of the Hebrew Bible, the Nevi'im, the prophets. And often, this can be confusing for people that this acronym is new to because we think of prophetic literature as like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, the the minor prophets. But the Nevi'im of the Hebrew Bible includes Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings as well. This is prophetic history, in other words. Prophecy is is effectively truth-telling, and while we're going to get some Hebrew nationalism filtered through in these prophetic books, some some buoying up of the authority of the state, these books are not political propaganda. Far from it. They contain difficult stories that show us the ugly side 
of many of those people who are heroes within their pages. Often, scholars will refer to the contents of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings as the Deuteronomistic history, since there are stylistic similarities and thematic similarities between the book of Deuteronomy and these former prophets, which is how Judaism refers to them, in contrast to the later prophets, which are the more prophetic quote-unquote books. So Joshua stands at the beginning of this Deuteronomistic history. And the Hebrew people begin their hostile takeover of Canaan here in Joshua. You'll note as you read Joshua that it contains, to some degree, two books. The first 12 chapters relay the the invasion, and the second 12 chapters deal with how the land is apportioned out to the tribes and what that looks like. It's good to know where many of the maps you find in the back or the front of your Bibles get their knowledge, and although the back half of Joshua is going to be a little bit dry— It contains a ton of this information, and you'll gain a greater appreciation for the logistics of how the Hebrews divvied up all the land. So stick with it. Um, We'll get to Judges pretty soon, and there will be a lot to talk about there. Um, So appreciate the breather that that you get in, in, in the back half of Joshua here. Now, much of Joshua is dedicated to putting the Canaanites who inhabit the land under the ban, Some uh, Bibles will render this as uh, totally destroy those who inhabit the land. This is, in a word, genocide. Now, we've discussed the theological and ethical issues around this before, but it's worth naming them again. How can we claim, on the one hand, that we serve a God who, in the words of Peter in 2 Peter 3.9, doesn't want anyone to perish but all to come to repentance? And yet, on the other hand, claim that we serve a God who charged the Hebrew people to totally slaughter the Canaanites. This doesn't seem to make sense. And uh, Jeannie S. asked a question this week that touches on this seeming contradiction, saying, how can we faithfully talk about land being rightfully owned by people or about our call to care for widows, orphans, and aliens— when we read that God told the Israelites to kill people living in the land God was giving to them. And this is a particularly important question in the wake of the conflict between Palestine and Israel in Gaza earlier this year, uh, really just a couple of weeks ago, I think. How is it that we can reconcile this contradiction? Well, we need to begin with what the narrative suggests, that the conquering Israelite armies were God's instrument for punishing the sin of the Canaanites. We see this in uh, Abraham's dream uh, way back in Genesis 15, when God visits Abraham and says that he's got a place planned out for Abraham and his descendants to live, but the sin of the people who live there now hasn't yet reached its full measure. So the conquering Israelite armies were God's instrument, allegedly, for punishing the sin of the Canaanites. However, we also see the Assyrians and Babylonians later in the biblical narrative just utterly brutalizing their enemies. And we don't see the same level of vengeance wreaked upon them. Paired with this, there's also very little historical and archaeological evidence for the invasion as it's described in Joshua. Uh, All the evidence that we have suggests that the Israelites didn't really make a huge splash when they arrived on the scene, that the Hebrews somehow got along with their neighbors as they began to inhabit the promised land. 
So all of this circumstantial evidence suggests that the actual history of the Hebrew people was significantly more syncretistic. That is, they likely had much more peaceful cultural and ethnic interchange and interaction with the residents of the Promised Land than Joshua suggests. It wasn't a our way or the highway sort of thing. Now, personally, this is really important for me to name. I believe that God is a God of justice and righteousness, and that there are times that suffering comes as a consequence for sin. However, there's something deeply disturbing about a God that commands total destruction of entire civilizations, particularly when the same God, as Jeannie perceptively named, uh, had called us to care for widows, orphans, and aliens. Particularly when the same God as promised to Abraham, intends to bless the Israelites so they can be a blessing to others. It would have been terrible to totally destroy the people of Germany after World War II, despite the war crimes of their leaders. So how can we justify the total and complete destruction of the people of Canaan? So, okay, with all this in mind, I would suggest that more evidence exists for this portion of Joshua being something more of an Israelite legend rather than based in reality. The God of Jesus Christ is not a God of genocide. Now, I want to name real quick here that this does not compromise my understanding of, of biblical authority, and I'm going to get to how we can see Joshua as an authoritative book here in a minute, but um, to, to try and answer your question, Jeannie, I would say that God did not tell the Israelites to kill people living in the lands that God was giving to them, and that's how I personally would reconcile this tension. I'd be interested in hearing how other folks reconcile this tension between uh, the God who wants to bless, the God who loves all the nations of the earth, the God uh, who uh, is the God of Jesus Christ, how do you reconcile that God and that tension with this idea of just total slaughter in the promised land? Now, I hope that answers your question, Jeannie. Uh, uh, Let me know if there are ways that I can speak to it uh, differently. So, Let's get to how the book of Joshua can be authoritative for us today. Well, if the book of Joshua was indeed assembled during the exile, which some evidence suggests was the case, that's around the same time that Deuteronomy was completed, well, then the redactor assembling the text might have been reflecting on why Israel and Judah were sent into exile and then using the ruthlessness of the Israelites and their God in this this legend uh, portrayed in Joshua to emphasize the danger posed by acquiescing to sin. And this opens the possibility of reading the book of Joshua metaphorically or allegorically as a strategy or guide to use against the sinful behavior that we struggle against. This uh, then transforms the command to kill people living in the promised land to being a command to struggle against the practices and values of a world that opposes God's kingdom. So we can see that in how the Israelites deal with uh, making treaties. We can see that in what happens when uh, next week we see one of the members of the Israelite army taking some uh, profit from the invasion. And and we'll get at a little bit what that means if we're going to read Joshua as... uh, a metaphorical take on how we can combat sin.
Joshua 2, we see some pointed echoes of earlier stories. This is the spiral of history that moves forward while revisiting significant themes or events. Now, in the story of Rahab, two spies venture into Jericho. They remind us, uh, but just by their very existence, of the story from Numbers in which only two of the twelve spies brought back a good report of the land. And the Rahab story also offers a, a neat reversal of the Numbers story in how Rahab describes the inhabitants of the land quavering in fear, mirroring the Israelite fear when they encountered the giants in the land. Seeing the scarlet rope hanging from Rahab's window may have brought to mind the blood on the doorposts and lintels of the houses during Passover. In both cases, the residents of the marked house were spared. Uh, The Israelites in Egypt were spared from the death of the firstborn. Here, Rahab and her family are spared from the invasion. And if we're going to interpret Joshua metaphorically or allegorically, this would suggest that as we begin to fight sin, there may be certain things we can learn in our fight against sin, that not everything that is a result of sin infecting our lives is a bad thing. It can generate antibodies, in other words. Uh, So be on the lookout as we fight sin for the Rahabs that help us to fight sin, the stuff that we've learned uh, from having been in sinful behavior, the stuff that Rahab learned as a Canaanite. Now, note also that, that I'm not talking about Rahab's profession. Uh, she wasn't judged for her profession. While perhaps it was that of an innkeeper, more likely uh, she was a prostitute. And you see, at its best, God's community welcomes all who want to enter without requiring conformity to a certain moral or ethical code prior to admission. Whenever we begin enforcing moral standards— on folks prior to them joining a community of faith, we need to tread real cautiously, remembering that it was while we were still sinners that God welcomed us in Christ. So, as the spies return, the people of God bear witness to a reenactment of the miracle of God parting the waters in the Red Sea. Instead of the Red Sea, though, God parts the waters here of the Jordan River, Just as the Hebrews were baptized into their wilderness wanderings, so too is this generation baptized via the waters of the Jordan River. Through this miracle, the children of Israel really began taking Joshua seriously, figuring, well, if God intends to use him as mightily as God used Moses, well, he must really be worth following. Now we see in the story of the parting of the Jordan River a tradition around the Ark of the Covenant Instead of being simply a decorative part of the temple, we begin to see it as something brimming with God's glorious and holy presence, so much so that the people of Israel are instructed to follow real far behind, like half a mile behind it. You see, God's presence, as the people experienced in the rebellion of Korath, Dathan, and Abiram, and as the Levites experienced in the children of Aaron carrying strange fire before the Lord, God's presence can be deeply destructive. The ark would, throughout Israel's history, begin to symbolize God's presence in the minds of the people of Israel, and thereby would need to be treated with respect and caution. If it is the very presence of God— You can't be joking around with it. So after crossing the Jordan, which was parted by the authority of the Ark of the Covenant, the Hebrews erected two stone towers. This is a good reminder for us. When God works a miracle in your life, commemorate it. 
And then a miracle can be as large as giving you self-control to fight an addiction, or as small as giving you sunshine on a meh sort of day. Answers to prayer, uh, seeing a, a, a relative or a friend get through an illness, it makes sense to mark these things in a visible way and an invisible way. Because no one would be able to see the stones erected under the waters of the Jordan, and yet they were just as important as those stones erected on the shore. By commemorating and remembering these moments of grace, we can begin to see them for what they really are, miracles and mighty acts that remind us of how God loves us. Marking them in a visible way may be telling a friend about them. Marking them in an invisible way may be journaling them. It may be uh, just bringing them to mind or having something that reminds you of the event. After the echo of the parting of the Red Sea, after the the, uh, story of the Jordan River, the narrative insists on another means of commemoration besides the Towers of Rocks. And this other means of commemoration is circumcision. The practice of circumcision here mirrors the same flint knife circumcision that Zipporah performed on Moses' son on the way back to Exodus, all the way back in Exodus 4. Excuse me, on the way back to Egypt, all the way back in Exodus 4. And, And this circumcision has a dual purpose. First, it ritually cleanses the Israelites. They, just as Moses did, need to get right with God before going on a holy mission, like the invasion of the Promised Land. Second, it etches in their very bodies the faithfulness of God, giving them another concrete reminder of their identity as God's special possession, and another reminder of God's steadfast commitment to them. With this circumcision, uh, this mass circumcision, it allow, that allows the Hebrews to celebrate Passover for the first time since fleeing Egypt. So as all this is going on, Joshua scouts Jericho for himself and encounters someone there calling himself the commander of the Lord's army. Now, there are two important things to note here. First, God speaks our native language. Joshua was a military man, and so God spoke in a way he would understand, through someone he sees as a fellow commander. And second, when Joshua asks this commander if he was on Joshua's side or the side of Joshua's enemies— the commander responds by saying, neither. Asking whether God is on our side is asking the wrong question. We need to ask ourselves whether we are on God's side. This is still true now. So frequently, particularly in our politics here in America, the challenge is to demonstrate that God is on our side, whether Democrat or Republican, regardless of policy. And that is never the right thing, the right goal, or the right question to ask. The question we need to ask ourselves is whether we can find ourselves on God's side. Sometimes that's going to involve being on a traditionally Republican or traditionally Democratic side. But we need to be very clear. This does not mean that God is a Republican or a Democrat. It means that God cares about every aspect of our lives, including how we govern ourselves. God cares about our policies. If we find ourselves trying to get God to join our side, to join our team, we've failed to learn the lesson of the commander of the Lord's army, and that's that we are not the main character in this story. 
God is. And so when we encounter the commander of the Lord's army, our opportunity is not to recruit him to join our army, but to say, how can I be of service? What would you have me do? That's all for Deuteronomy 34 and Joshua 1 through 5. Next week, we're going to read Joshua 6 through 11, where we uh, continue to see the violent campaign of conquering the promised land. And in fact, we'll see it reach its conclusion to some degree. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture. Thank you.